You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. I'm so excited uh, to be jumping into God's word with you today. Uh, If you're joining us and maybe you're newer to our church, this summer we are going through Paul's letter to Timothy. It's called 1 Timothy in your Bible. You can go ahead each week and just, you can open to 1 Timothy every single week. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 if you have a Bible. And today we're really going to start off with that question that we just sang in the last song. Did you catch that? Oh, to think where I would be if not for you. Have you ever really stopped and thought about that? I mean, we think about who we were before Christ, but have you really like played that hypothetical, imaginary game in your mind? Where would you be without Jesus today? What kind of person would you be without Jesus? And if you're here and maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this from me. We're so glad that you're here, and maybe you could actually ask the opposite of that question. Where would you be with Jesus? I hope that every single week that you attend and that you are part of our worship gatherings, you could actually visualize that a little more clearly, what it might be like if you were to put your faith in Christ. But just think about that for a moment. Where would you be today if Christ was not a factor in your life? I don't know about you, but for me, I don't think I would be a criminal, honestly. I don't, I don't think I would, I would be a criminal. Maybe some of you are like, no, you would definitely. You'd be... You'd be. <laughs> Uh, I, I think I'd probably, I'm, I'm fairly uh, performance-oriented, achievement-oriented. I, I think I would probably be successful in some line of work. I try to make a lot of money, but here's what I can guarantee you. I would be stressed out. I'm very prone to, to kind of worry and anxiety. And, and even, I, I guarantee you, I would give my life you know, towards something, towards some kind of mission or job or success or career, but I would be miserable. I think I'd probably be married. I'd I'd probably be married. Maybe I would have kids, but I can tell you this. I would not be a great man to be married to. I'd be really selfish. How do I know that? Because I'm already somewhat selfish. And without Christ, I I can just tell you, I, I might be married, I might have kids, but my family, it would all be about me. It would all be about me. Uh, another thing that I can tell you, I, I know that, that it's true of me, if, if I didn't have Jesus in my life, is I'd be a very angry person. I, and that would either go towards cynicism, just be cynical, or I would just be outright angry all the time. Now, this question, where would you be without Christ, really what it demonstrates to us, it teaches us, is that you can't meet Jesus and stay the same person. Do you know that? In Christ... We are what the Apostle Paul calls a new creation. We're new. And this not only means that you're saved from your sins in the past, but you, are, you experience freedom from sin. You're saved for a purpose. You're saved in order to become someone new. And no one is the same after coming to Christ. And so even though I was saved at a very young age, I was baptized when I was eight years old. So I have to use my imagination to be like, who, what kind of person would I be? I can tell you those are the things, stress, anxiety, selfishness, those are the kind of things, anger, that are just 
they're, they're true of me as a broken person and that those are the things I continue to experience sanctification from, freedom from in my life. And I hope that you would experience that too. I hope that you would experience the freedom found in Jesus because we can't meet Jesus and stay the same. We're gonna read the Apostle Paul's Jesus story. It's his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter one. And we're gonna see how he changed as a result of encountering Christ. We're gonna be in 1 Timothy chapter one, starting in verse 12 today. It says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul never forgot who he was without Christ. He never forgot what Christ had saved him from. There's three things there. He was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor of Christians, and he was an insolent man, or he was a violent person. He was angry. Now, this, this term, blasphemer, is an interesting term for Paul to use because it's typically used for someone who desecrates the name of God. And it's one of the most serious offenses in the Old Testament. In fact, you can read in Leviticus 24, 16, that whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. So it's a very serious offense that Paul used to describe himself. And what's interesting about Paul's story is he's not calling himself a blasphemer because he blasphemed the name of Yahweh. In fact, Paul was extremely religious. Do you know his story? He was, he was a Jew above all Jews. He was a Pharisee above all Pharisees. So he wasn't going around blaspheming the God of the Old Testament. Whose name was he taking in vain? The name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. In Acts 4, we read, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And we know that Jesus, the Son of God, was there in the presence of many religious people, many Pharisees, and they were guilty of calling him things like insane, calling him things like a false prophet, and some even dared to call the Son of God a demon-possessed man. And you want to know who's among that group who blasphemed the name of Jesus? The Apostle Paul. He traveled. He took joy in traveling from city to city to arrest Christians so that they might be put in prison and some of them might even be put to death. You know something's off in your heart when you begin to take joy in the pain and the death of others, even of your enemies. And that's how Paul describes himself. He's like, that's who I was. He was a broken man. And he met Jesus in Acts chapter nine. That was homework, by the way, of last week. Did anyone read? You don't have to raise your hand. Acts chapter nine, right? This is Paul's story. If you wanna read it this week, you can read Paul's full testimony. His, his, this is his Jesus story, his story of how he met Christ. And quite literally, 
He met Christ on the road to Damascus. He met the resurrected Savior. And he was blinded in that moment. And for three days, he was actually uh, fasting. He took neither food nor water for three days. His eyes were blind. And he was wrestling. Because when he met Jesus, Jesus questioned him, why are you persecuting me? Don't you know who I really am? You think you're fighting for God, but you're actually fighting against God. And for three days, Paul goes into the, what I would say is the lowest moment of his life, the most broken that he's ever been. Imagine that, three days of total darkness, taking in neither food nor water. Physically, his body is broken, right? Spiritually, he's wrestling with the fact that he's literally killed Christians. And he's, he's full of deep shame and regret and guilt. And he's going through, during those three days, what we would say is a kind of metamorphosis. And after three days, God sends a man named Ananias to go and to baptize the, what we now know as the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, 18 and 19, this is what happens. And immediately after Ananias goes to Paul, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was what? Everyone say that last word. He was strengthened. In 1 Timothy 1.12, what does Paul thank Jesus for? I thank him who gave me strength. Now, obviously, there's physical strength that returns when you break a three-day fast, right? You get that? There's physical strength. He, he, he ate some food, and his strength returned to his body. But I think there's more than that. In fact, look, just a few verses later in Acts 9.22, but Saul increased all the more in what? In strength. This is not physical strength. It's not like, so Saul, you know, he started hitting the gym and he started, you know, getting the gains, as we would say, right? But he increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So there's a spiritual power that Paul receives, having been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, by the way, promises this power to all who are his witnesses in Acts 1.8. But you will receive, this is a promise from Jesus Christ, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so you might be in a place this morning where you feel like, I'm in that three days of darkness. I'm right there with Paul. I'm confronted with my own sins, my own brokenness. I'm, I'm filled with shame. I'm filled with embarrassment. I'm filled with regret. You might describe your life right now as rock bottom. I've never been more low than I am right now. And I have good news. The good news of the gospel is when you're in the moment of your deepest weakness, you are perfectly positioned to receive strength and power from God. You're perfectly positioned be raised up into a new life, if you would just put your faith, put your trust in Jesus. The Apostle Paul would likely resonate with this all-time greatest hit worship song, this hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's Paul's story. Here's the point for you and I. God erases your sins, not your story. Do you catch that? God erases your sins when you put your faith in Jesus. Though your sins are scarlet, they are washed white as snow, we would say you have a clean slate. Your sins are fully, 100% forgiven by the work that Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. 
But he doesn't erase your story. And you see this time and time. You can't read Paul's letters in the New Testament and not know his story. He's always sharing what we would say is his testimony, his Jesus story, his story of coming to Christ. And he doesn't cover over, he doesn't erase the dark spots of that story, the ugly spots, the spots he was, would likely would have been very embarrassed by. He says it very clearly. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent person. I was angry. He doesn't forget that stuff. And this is really significant for you and I because one of the most powerful things that you have as a follower of Jesus to share the gospel with others is your story. And every single Christian has a Jesus story. You have it and I do. Maybe you haven't thought about your Jesus story in a while, but I encounter Christians all the time who have these, one of these two hesitations with, with their stories and sharing their story, sharing their testimony with others. The first major hesitation is someone who really resonates with the Apostle Paul, and they would say, my life was terrible before Christ, right? And they're actually still carrying around some of that unnecessary shame that Christ should have you know, erased from them and forgiven them from. And the first hesitation is this. Well, I just don't want to dwell on the past, right? That's the past. If I'm a new creation, I'm just going to live in this current identity. And there's a difference, by the way, in dwelling on the past and remembering the past or acknowledging that the past happened. Right? So in Christ, you don't have to dwell on the past. I'm not saying like we should just dwell on that, who, you know, who you were before Christ. But it's very, very important for the sake of using your testimony to remember even the dark and uncomfortable. And I know it's, I just want to acknowledge it might be really uncomfortable for you to remember some of those shameful things that you have done, the person that you were. And yet, there's so much power because there's people that God wants you to share your Jesus story with who are struggling with the very same thing and they don't even believe it's possible that they could experience freedom and forgiveness in Christ. And they need to hear whose story, whose story? They need to hear your story. They need to know that it's possible. They need to know that the power of the gospel can save even them. And so would you, if you have that hesitation, I don't want to dwell on the past. I'm here to tell you, you don't have to dwell on your past, but it's helpful to remember the past, to acknowledge the past, to recognize the person that you were and the new creation that you are now. That's the first hesitation. The second hesitation, though, that I hear maybe more frequently than the first is someone who resonates not with the Apostle Paul, but resonates a little bit more with someone like me who grew up in church and who doesn't have this, yeah, I was a drug dealer last week, and now I'm a pastor, right? Who doesn't have this like drastic 180 change. And this is the hesitation. Maybe your hesitation is this. I don't have a story. I hear that all the time from Christians. Well, that's great for this person. They have a powerful testimony. I don't, I don't have a story. And I'm here to tell you, every Christian has a Jesus story. And I wanna just ask you to consider some questions. Have you experienced, maybe you don't have this drastic before and after, but have you ever experienced freedom from Christ in any areas? Have you ever experienced victory over sin and temptation in your life? Has Jesus ever come through for you at just the right time? Have you ever had a powerful prayer answered? 
Have you ever experienced any freedom? Have you ever experienced victory? Is the gospel good news to you whatsoever? You should be able to answer some of those questions. And the reality is we see time and time again young adults walking away from church, walking away from the faith that their their parents really tried to pass down to them, walking away, graduating out of youth group and, and subsequently kind of graduating from the church, leaving the church. And I'm here to tell you that it is a powerful Jesus story to meet someone who was born and raised in a Christian home. And yeah, they, they still have struggles, they still have trials they've been through, they still have you know, ways that they, that they struggle, but they just, they just were faithful through it. You don't quite realize, if you have that I don't have a story hesitation, then you don't quite realize just how powerful and needed your story is in our cultural moment today. Especially young adults need to know it's possible to wrestle with doubt, to wrestle with trials, to wrestle with even temptations. Having grown, been born and raised in the church, discipled by your parents, memorized Bible verses at Sunday school, been to all the camps, and then graduate and, and go into your adult years and still have a strong faith in Jesus. That is a powerful story. And here's what I'm here to tell you is the enemy wants to keep you quiet. Jesus doesn't want to keep you quiet with your testimony. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to keep us quiet with our testimonies. The enemy wants to convince us either you're too broken to use your story or you don't have a drastic enough story or an exciting enough story. And I'm here to tell you that your story is something that God will use as a powerful witness for the gospel. Would you share it? Would you, would you know it? Would you, we have to think about our stories. We have to remember our stories. And would you begin to share it? Because God erases your sins, but he does not erase your story. Let's see how Paul continues this in 1 Timothy 1:15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here what Paul gets down to is he kind of makes a shift from his own story to God's story, which we would say is the gospel. He says it so clearly he says, this, here's a saying that's trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance, okay? Do you remember from last couple weeks, one of, the, one of the main issues surrounding 1 Timothy is there's false doctrine, there's false teachings, and so here, here Paul is underlining it. He's like, you wanna know a true teaching? I'll give you a true teaching, and here's a one-sentence gospel message for you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a one-sentence gospel, Okay? And there's two aspects, two very important theological truths that we learn from this one-sentence gospel message. The first one is a theology called the incarnation. It means in flesh. And that's the idea that Christ Jesus came into the world. Christ Jesus came into the world. That's the incarnation. It's not that Jesus is a very good person who was born and attained the status of the Son of God. It's that Jesus is the preexistent Son of the living God, He was born of the Virgin Mary. He's fully God and he's fully man. And here's why this is very, very 
important. Because Paul said at the end, did you, did you catch that in verse 17? To, to the king of ages who is immortal. What's another way to say immortal? Can't die. We might say it like this. You can't kill God. And so how is a God that you can't kill able to die for the sins of the world? So God takes on flesh, right? Jesus, the preexistent son, is born into our world, takes on flesh so that he can bleed, so that he can experience every ounce of pain from a crown of thorns and the nails through his hands and his feet so that he could suffer and die on the cross. But here's why it's important that we acknowledge that Jesus is not only in the flesh, he's not only a man, is that he must be the son of God so that he could atone not just for one person's sins, but for the sins of every single human being who ever lived on planet Earth, past, present, and future. Christ Jesus came into the world, fully God, fully man, dying on the cross for our sins and raised back to life. But then we see the second part of the gospel there. The second main theological truth is not the incarnation, it's the redemption. What did Jesus come to do? He came into our world, but Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save sinners. This was his mission. And Jesus came to do a lot of things, by the way. He came to preach good sermons, right? We have some phenomenal truth that Jesus preached. But do you recognize that he did not come in the world primarily to be a teacher? Jesus was a perfect example. He lived a perfect life without sin. And so if you want to know how to live your life, who should you follow? Follow Jesus to pattern your life after Jesus. He's a model, right? He's a model for us to follow. That's not the primary reason that Christ Jesus came into the world. Jesus performed many miracles, right, to demonstrate God's power. But Jesus did not primarily come into the world as a miracle worker. What's the primary reason? What's his main mission? He came into the world to save sinners. And Paul uses this interesting phrase. He says, of which I am the foremost of sinners, not of which I was the foremost. Now, what does this mean exactly? Is, is Paul saying, I'm literally the worst sinner who's ever lived? No, there's a little bit of an exaggeration here. And it also is not Paul saying, even though I'm uh, saved in Christ, I continue to live this, this crazy life of sin, right? He's not saying that either. What he's, what he's saying is this is very typical of the Apostle Paul. He never lost sight of his identity as a sinner redeemed, right? As a, we would say as a sinner saved by grace. And he holds himself up. This word, the foremost, by the way, could also be translated as the prototype. He's the, he, he's the example. Paul's the, the example that we might follow. And here's the point for you and I. If Jesus can save Paul then Jesus can save you. That's why Paul is, by the way, highlighting all of these bad things about his past and the person he used to be, is if he wants you to know, listen, Jesus saved me. I killed his followers. I was a violent person. I blasphemed his name. I called him demon-possessed. And guess what? Jesus saved even me. That's hope for you. Jesus can save you. And I'm here to tell you that today. The power of God raised Christ Jesus from the dead. There's not a person in this room, there's not a person in this world on planet Earth that God cannot save. There's not a human being, no matter, no matter how messed up, no matter how broken, no matter how bad they've blasphemed Christ's name, no matter how much sin is in their life that God cannot and is not willing to save. And today might be the day 
that you receive that gospel. That's the gospel message. When, when Paul was in that position, what does he say? Christ lavished, he poured out, he overflowed his grace upon me. We still believe in the God who is rich in mercy and kindness and loves you and longs for you and is patient in waiting for you and drawing you to come to a knowledge of him, to repent from that old life and to turn towards him. And I just wanna invite you today. Today can be day one of your Jesus story. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, today can be the day that you pray an initial prayer of faith and you ask God, God, would you forgive my sins and would you lead my life? And I wanna invite you to respond the way Jesus instructed us. That's through baptism. You can find out more at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. Baptism is this powerful moment, really, in your Jesus story where you declare once and for all that the old person is gone and there's a new creation that Christ Jesus is raising back up out of those baptismal waters. Today can be day one of your Jesus story. I don't wanna invite you to respond to God's grace by putting your faith in Jesus. Continuing through our text, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, by rejecting the gospel, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's figure this one out, shall we? Without Christ, here's the metaphor, okay? We're gonna, Paul gave it to us, so we're gonna run with it. He uses the idea of a shipwreck. What that means is if you're, if you're saved by grace through faith, you're on the boat, okay? Does that make sense? It's, it's the picture of without Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We are sinking in the ocean. We don't know how to swim. We're running out of strength. And we, we have no power, by the way, to climb up, you know, and, and save ourselves. We are, we are like one hand in the air, like barely getting our fingertips out of the water, gasping for breath. This is the metaphor, okay? What do we need? We need a savior. Jesus is that savior who reaches down. Remember the story where Peter's walking on water and his faith begins to waver and it begins to, to, to drown? What does he need? He needs Jesus to reach down, grab him and pull him back up, okay? That's, this is the gospel. We don't save ourselves. We just raise our hands and we, say, we, we let Jesus save us in that moment. But what does he pull us up onto? We're on a boat, okay? So that's the metaphor. We're on a boat. What kind of boat is it, okay? I'm gonna, run, I'm gonna like squeeze every ounce that we can out of this metaphor, by the way. What kind of boat is it? For some Christians, they treat their faith in Jesus like a cruise ship. I wanna show you one kind of boat. This is the Disney Wish, okay? Have you seen this before? By the way, I am no, I'm not judging you if you've ever been on a cruise. I've, I myself have never been on a cruise, but this is just, it's just a metaphor, okay? The Disney Wish, it was, it was uh, brand new. It's called the Triton Class. There's not, a, there's not a single cruise ship like it on that sails the seven seas. It, if you wanna go to the Bahamas, you should check this out because it, it sails around 
the Bahamas. It has a water slide meets roller coaster attraction on board. It has movies. It has nightclubs. It has pools. It has pubs. It has a Walt Disney Theater for live action Disney musicals. Uh, you can, you, like, it has all the entertainment that you want. It's 1,119 feet long, has a max occupancy of 4,000 people, and it carries 1,500 crew members. And guess what their, their total job is? To make you have a magical experience, okay? That's the Disney wish. It's the Disney wish. Because when you get on a cruise ship, who is it all about? It's all about... It's all about me. And again, I'm not here to judge you because if you're going on a vacation, that's what you paid for. It should be all about you. If you paid the money and you're, you're there for a good time. But here's the problem with that kind of consumeristic, it's all about me attitude when it creeps into the church. The church is not a cruise ship. The church is not a cruise ship. Paul uses this metaphor, like our faith is like a boat. It's not like a cruise ship though. In fact, what what does he tell to Timothy? He says, remember the prophecies. I give you this charge. What's he reminding Timothy? He's reminding him, you've got a job to do. In fact, in in, in 1 Timothy 4, 14, he's gonna say this. Do not neglect the gift you have. It's not that that, uh, Timothy has received a, a gift for his own benefit. He's received this gift because he's got work to do, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. In Ephesians chapter 2, What Paul tells us is we're saved by grace, through faith, for good works. There's work to do. Here at Hill City Church, we say it like this. This is one of our core values. Everyone has a job to do. Everyone has a job to do. That this is not, it's more about being contributors to God's kingdom than showing up and being consumers of religious goods and services. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been saved by grace through faith, you're pulled up on the boat, and your hand, here's your job, here's a rope, do you know how to sail yet? And you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's like, okay, there's someone else who, who, can, who can disciple you and teach you and show you and instruct you. And, and, and we've got to fan into flame those little sparks of spiritual giftings and passions. But you have a gift too. You are called, you're commissioned. And, and just like Paul is telling Timothy, what's Timothy's job? In Ephesus, handling these false teachers, dealing with false doctrine, it's a difficult job. And so what, it, what is Paul doing? He's saying, listen, I'm not just telling you as your mentor to go and do this. Remember the prophecies about you. The Holy Spirit has appointed you for this task. He's not just flexing his own like, you know, disciple and, and mentor relationship or even I'm an apostle and I'm telling you to go do this. He's like, you remember when God told you to do this? Right? What is God telling you to do? How is God inviting you? How is the Holy Spirit leading you to use your gifts for God's kingdom? Because the church is not, everyone say it, the church is not, it's not a cruise ship. Do, you, do we recognize that? And consumerism is a major problem in the American church. Far too many Christians, and maybe even church leaders, have gone into the business of making the church out to be a cruise ship where it's all about me. Let's look at another kind of ship. Some Christians uh, treat faith like a battleship. Here's another boat. This is the USS Missouri. It was the final warship created in 1944 for World War II. 
Uh, it's an Iowa-class battleship, which I had to look what up, up what that means. It means it's very fast. It's very fast. It's armed with giant artillery power. It's 885 feet long. It weighs 45,000 tons. Has several notable battles throughout World War II, most notably the Battle of Okinawa. Uh, I think you can see this boat at the Pearl Harbor display in Hawaii. Is that true? Has anyone been there? I'm pretty sure that, yeah, that's where the boat is today. The boat's still around. And this is actually where the peace treaty was signed uh, with the Japanese on, on board the ship at the end of World War II. Is the church a battleship? No, the church is not a battleship. Even though, although, to acknowledge, Paul says to Timothy, wage the good warfare. And some Christians have taken that and be like, warfare, let's do this. And we kind of take this like, all right, let's gear up for war. And the reality is, Paul says this to Timothy, and, and in the ESV, which, which we're using today, translates it properly because some translations say fight the good fight. A little bit later in 1 Timothy, Paul also says fight the good fight. Those are actually two different words. The word here is, uh, is the Greek word stratuo, which is where we get our word strategy from. Does that make sense? Stratuo, strat- strategy. And uh, it literally means to go to war, to go to battle. He's, 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 he is using warfare language, but let me just ask the question like this. He says, wage the good warfare, but, but if we're talking about strategy and being strategic for the sake of the gospel, what is our strategy? Because this will influence how we actually view what kind of boat we're on here. Is our strategy the best defense is a good offense? Is our strategy tear down anyone that disagrees with us? Is our strategy picket signs and social media arguments? I don't know, just look at the American church. Many Christians think it is. Let me remind you, by the way, we we need to not only know our strategy, we also need to know the most important thing in warfare, who is, in fact, our enemy? Who are we even fighting against, by the way? And Paul clarifies this in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's how I would summarize Paul's point. We fight for faith, not against people. We fight for faith, not against people. Because the reality is, other human beings are not only created in God's image and have inherent worth and value, but guess who Jesus died for? The person that you're fighting against. Be careful that you're not fighting against someone that Jesus is fighting in order to save. Does that make sense? So yes, by the way, yes, we are in a spiritual battle. The enemy is real. This is spiritual warfare, but we have to be really careful. How does Paul answered the question to Timothy. Here's your strategy. He gives him two things, by the way, in our text. Two two strategies. The first one is hold fast to the faith. Believe the true gospel. That's not typically what we think. That's not the best defense is a good offense, by the way. It's really be grounded in the gospel. Know the true faith. By the way, for Timothy's specific charge to go and confront false teachers, this is very dangerous for him. Because he starts getting into arguments with people who are naturally deceptive and they know Old Testament scriptures and they're twisting God's word, right? It's 
pretty, it would be pretty easy for Timothy, a younger man, to potentially be persuaded or convinced by their, by their heresy. So what's Paul say? Here's your first strategy. Hold fast to the faith. And the second one is keep a good conscience. In this fight for the faith, make sure that you don't do anything to incriminate yourself. Don't stoop down to someone else's level. Don't do anything sinful, right? In fact, we just got to think about this. We've got to, you know, be ready in any season to give a reason for the hope that we have. What we must also do so, as, as Peter says, with gentleness and respect with gentleness and respect. So the church is not a cruise ship. The church is not a battleship. I want to show you one other kind of boat. This is the Royal National Lifeboat Forester's Centenary. It's an actual uh, boat used also during World War II. It's a little smaller than those other boats that we looked at. 35 feet, 6 inches long, and can carry 30 people. Max capacity, right? And during World War II and the years following, I think it was active for another uh, decade and a half, and uh, it had 129 rescue operations. It saved more than 80 lives and would often, when there was a down plane, it would go out to the plane, that same situation I described, the plane has sunk, the human being is barely keeping their head above the water, and that would be the boat that would show up and the hand would go down and it would pull them up. What does this teach us? The church is a lifeboat. This is the kind of boat that we're on. The church is a lifeboat. Now, it's really interesting because the language that Paul uses for Alexander and Hymenaeus, who are two, we believe these are two of the false teachers, possibly even elders in the church or former elders in the church in Ephesus, and Paul uses very strong language He says, I've handed them over to Satan. What in the world does this mean, okay? This is a phrase used actually uh, also in 1 Corinthians. And really, the best way to interpret this is essentially the idea that in this world, there are two kingdoms. This is what Jesus taught us. There is the kingdom of heaven. there's There's the kingdom of darkness. Or we might say there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, And essentially, what Paul is saying when he's saying, I'm handed them over to Satan, is he's saying, they are no, I'm I'm making sure that, by the way, this letter, 1 Timothy, would have been read publicly. Imagine if Alexander and Hymenaeus are sitting there in the front row. You see that? Paul wanted to be extremely crystal clear to everyone in the entire church, those guys are not Christians anymore. Right? Whether they were genuine Christians at one point in time or not, that's a debate we can have at another time. But he's like, listen, just so everyone knows, they're not in the kingdom of God, we're going to go ahead and recognize, publicly recognize, they belong in the kingdom of Satan. By the way, he doesn't do that so that everyone starts mistreating them. He does that for a very specific purpose. If those two guys are genuinely not saved, but they think they are, do you see the problem there? And everyone's just like, well, you know, they're like, they, they've gone to church for a really long time. They have this good Christian heritage. You know, I've heard them speak before. They, they were elders in the church. Of course they have to be saved. And they think they are, but they're not. They're actually, they think they're on the boat, but their boat has actually capsized and is sinking and they're drowning. You see this? 
So Paul says this. We, we kind of think like he's, he's, he's like roasting them in front of the, the congregation, which is certainly like part of it. He wants everyone to know these guys are not to be trusted in their teaching. But I believe there's actually this true, pure motive. He's concerned because who likely shared the gospel with Alexander and Hymenaeus to begin with? Likely the Apostle Paul. He went to elders meetings with them. He went to prayer meetings with them. He cares about these guys. It breaks his heart. He knows how bad he had it. I was a blasphemer before, and God even saved me. Look at what Paul says in his second letter to Timothy about how Timothy should engage. Specifically, he mentions by name, once again, Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, 2 Timothy 2.24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Does that sound like a warship, by the way? A battleship? No. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I believe that Paul instructs Timothy here, treat those guys like they're no longer part of the church, for the purpose, he says it, so that they might learn not to blaspheme. Like Paul was formerly a blasphemer, those guys, they need to learn the true gospel once again. Here's the point. If Jesus can save you, then Jesus can save your enemy. If Jesus can save Paul, then Jesus can save you. That's good news for who? That's good news for you. But good news for the world is that if Jesus can save you, Remember your own testimony. Remember your own brokenness. Remember the ways that God has showered his grace upon you. Then Jesus can save even your enemy. And we must never write people off as someone that God is unable to save. Remember Christ Jesus nailed to the cross, blood pouring down his body, gasping for air, utters the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ's concern on the cross was for the very people who were killing him. So what happens to us when we're saved? Well, we're pulled up onto not a cruise ship. We're not pulled up onto a battleship. Let's go get the world. Let's win the culture wars. We're pulled up onto a lifeboat. And we join Jesus in his mission to seek and to save the lost. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.